When I was a kid, my brother and my mom and I would sometimes travel out to Vancouver Island to stay with my great aunt Marnie. She had this beautiful house on a hill. She had a garden, it was full of smells and colors. It was like a different planet. I have lots of great memories from those trips. I also have a wicked scar on my shoulder from one of those trips, but that's a different story. But the thing I want to focus on is what I remember about inside the house. Every time we went, she would have a few new issues of Reader's Digest. And you know what? They were really good. Turns out I'm not the only person who thinks that. Reader's Digest was founded in the 1920s. They still publish today. And for decades, it was the most read magazine in America. Now, there are two things that make Reader's Digest unique. One is the size of the magazine itself. The pages are like half the size of a normal magazine, so it feels like you're holding a book. But the second thing is that Reader's Digest doesn't focus on original reporting. Its whole purpose is to rewrite, to reprint shorter, simpler versions of articles you can find in other magazines. Now, today, there are lots of websites that do that. We call them aggregators. They collect other people's writing and they deliver it in bite-sized pieces. But back then, Reader's Digest was the only one doing that. And that is why it was so wildly popular. In February of 1963, just as the Beatles are recording Please Please Me at Abbey Road Studios, an issue of Reader's Digest comes out with an article about an amazing discovery. In that article, a man named Nick Holoniak describes this tiny crystal that can convert electricity into light without getting hot. Now, not heating up is a telltale sign that very little of the electricity is getting wasted. So that means this is an amazingly efficient way to make light. At the time, it was still rudimentary. It only made red light. But that article predicted that these crystals would very soon replace the incandescent light bulb as the way we light our homes. Here's what it said. The lamp of the future may be a speck of metal the size of a pencil point which will be practically indestructible, will never burn out, and will convert at least 10 times as much current into light as does today's bulb. And you know what happened? Nothing happened. The reaction of everybody was, yeah, that's really cool, but um, we don't really need that. So keep in mind, just having electricity in your home was still kind of new. New frontiers, new opportunities. I mean, 40 years before, in 1925, only half of the homes in America had electricity. And these are the explorers of a new America, creating, developing, building and serving an electrified America. But by the 1950s, it felt like electric power was unlimited. Light for convenience, light for safety, light for study, work and pleasure. This is not a generation that has any interest in high-efficiency bulbs. Light for a nation to the extent that now there's nothing done in the light of day that cannot be done at night. Still, Holoniak had faith. I knew that it was a very powerful thing, and that these materials will become a source of white light. I thought it might be a decade. But the revolution in home lighting that Holoniak predicted didn't happen. His prediction of a decade became two decades, and then three, and then four then five. And now we're almost 60 years since his discovery. Today, of course, that discovery, the light-emitting diode, or LED, 
is standard fare for things like laptop screens, flat panel TVs, but it's only really in the last couple years that you can seriously look around your house and credibly say that LEDs have replaced the light bulb. He was, as the cliche goes, ahead of his time. He'd invented a technology that was in every measurable way better than the existing one. It just didn't have a market. In 2012, the 50th anniversary of his invention, Holoniak finally started to get some recognition. He told reporters, I knew this was going to go and go and go, but of course, I didn't know it would take 50 years of work to get to where we are now. Now that original diode, smaller than a penny, never really got its due. Is it in the Smithsonian Museum? No. Is it encased in glass in a display case in the central hall of some big university? It is not. It is in Holoniak's house. It's sitting in a desk drawer tucked into a white paper envelope. It's not even plugged in. I'm Dan Riskin, and this is Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life. It's a historical and modern look at how science works. We live today in an age of science. That's from a newsreel in 1954, and I love playing that clip because... Honestly, you can imagine someone saying those exact words in the 1950s, or the 1850s, or 50 BC, and of course, today. For a systematic way of looking at things, and thinking problems through. In a way, things haven't changed that much over the centuries. Ultimately, we're all still just trying to figure out how the world works. It is this that has given us the remarkable achievements of science in modern times. So with that in mind, we're going to look backwards in order to look forward. This podcast is produced by Symar, a medical research group developing a new way to attack type 2 diabetes. Rather than focusing on the insulin produced by the pancreas, as scientists have been doing for a century, Symar is studying a hormone called HIS that comes from the liver. HIS, by the way, stands for Hepatic Insulin Sensitizing Substance, but more on that later. The work of Symar's founder, Dr. Wayne Lott, mirrors the journeys of hundreds of other scientists, so we're going to tell his story using those historical ones. This series introduces you to characters like Archimedes and Galileo, Newton, Einstein, Curie, Fleming, the duo of Banting and Best, and I'll do my best to bring the lessons from those older tales into a modern context. This is Episode 2, Bad Timing. If you take the time to look through old magazines like Reader's Digest or National Geographic or even just popular mechanics, you'll find all kinds of predictions that people make about the future. And that's as true today as it has ever been. In fact, I predict it'll still be true decades from now. See what I did there? For example, in the January 11th edition of the New York Times, you can read this quote. Within a year, I hope, we shall begin the manufacture of an electric automobile. I don't like to talk about things which are a year ahead, but I am willing to tell you something of my plans. That same person in the same article goes on to say this. The fact is, I've been working for some years on an electric automobile which would be cheap and practicable. It's a bold claim, but what makes it exciting is that the man making that claim manufactures more cars than anyone else in America. Yeah, this isn't like Elon Musk trying to disrupt the establishment. This is the establishment. 
This is the most powerful person in the American automotive industry saying that within a year, electric cars are going to be rolling off the assembly line. But here's the problem. That's not from this January 11th. It's not from last January 11th. It's from 1914. That's Henry Ford. We are satisfied now that the way is clear to success. So what happened in the century since then? Because I look down my street and count all the electric cars and I don't even need to get to my second hand. How did a brilliant idea backed by the most powerful people in the country fail? I think it comes down to bad timing. At the dawn of the 20th century, automobiles were starting to make a name for themselves. Yes, most people are still taking horses to get everywhere, but the horseless carriage is finally starting to catch on. But there's a debate, and the debate is, what are you going to power them with? And the first candidate is steam. In 1866, there was a man named Francis Curtis. I think you're going to like Francis Curtis. He works for the city of Newburyport, Massachusetts. He's the superintendent of the gas works there. In fact, he designed the first municipal waste system. But it's what he did on his own time that is fascinating. He was friends with the fire chief, and he figured that since the fire wagon, which of course was still being pulled by horses in 1866, carried a lot of water, why not use all that water to make steam to power the pumps? You know, instead of doing it by hand. His invention even got written up in the Newburyport Daily Herald. They said it was self-reliant and independent, as though it were a living thing. This gave him the confidence to build a passenger car powered by steam. And this was a thing of beauty. It carried 20 gallons of water, 80 pounds of coal, and could go 25 miles an hour. A wealthy businessman in town offered to buy that car for $1,000. Now, that's a huge amount of money at that time, so Curtis agrees to take the money in installments. But, here's the kicker, when the businessman defaults on one of his payments, Curtis takes the car back. So this technically makes him the first repo man in history. Later, while he's driving around the neighborhood, one of his neighbors calls the cops on him. I don't know why, but when the cops show up, Curtis pushes the speed lever forward and races down the road. The police are on foot. They can't catch up. So this is also the first getaway car in American history. Now, as great as the car was, it could only go about five or six miles before he had to top up the boiler with more water. So he didn't get all that far. And the Newburyport City Council was not very impressed. In fact, they forbid him from ever building another steam-powered automobile. And that was the end of that. But although Curtis had to stop, there were other steam-powered cars. The Stanley Steamer was the most popular. Between 1899 and 1905, that's a six-year span, it was the second biggest selling vehicle in the country. But steamers had three issues. The first issue was that they were called steamers. That's just a terrible name. The second issue was that their range was limited by how much water you were able to carry. And the last thing? They took forever to heat up in the morning. I mean, in the winter, you could be waiting as long as 45 minutes before you could get rolling. So that left the door open to two other challengers, gasoline and electric. And really, fundamentally, that's what this whole story is about. Why gasoline cars won and electric cars lost. 
Gas and electric cars emerge around the same time, around 1900. And it's the dawn of a new century. There are these massive cultural shifts going on all over the place. This is the time that people start leaving the farms to go work in factories in massive numbers. So the whole population is shifting from the rural areas to the urban areas. And economically, America is booming. It's also a time that women started entering the paid workforce in serious numbers. Now, obviously, it was still the early 1900s, so they weren't getting paid fairly. They didn't have corner offices. But by 1910, women did make up about a third of the workforce. On top of that, immigration is at record levels. So you've got this ever-growing source of workers, you've got a big market for new products. And with all those changes, nothing symbolizes the first decade of the 20th century better than the emergence of the automobile. Cars now became a more and more frequent sight, particularly in cities. They changed the way we traveled, the way we lived, and they became a major player in the American economy. By 1903, there were more than a thousand automobile manufacturers in the United States. I mean, just think about these numbers. In 1900, 4,000 cars built in America. Ten years later, it's 187,000. It was booming. Now everybody could have one. For most of that first decade of the 1900s, sales of electric cars and gasoline cars were pretty much equivalent. But the experience of driving those cars? Not equivalent. A gasoline car had to be started with a hand crank, and that was a major, major pain in the butt. You've probably seen it in the black and white movies. So the driver sets the throttle handle, turns the ignition key, then they get out of the car, walk around to the front, then they have to grab this giant metal bar thing that's bent at a right angle and then crank it clockwise like a clock as hard as they can. And this is not easy to do. It takes a ton of strength. And it's also dangerous because if you don't do it right, the engine could backfire and that would send the handle going the other way around. Smash your hand. In fact, it could even break your arm. Electric cars? You press a button. Once they were running, gasoline cars were noisy. They were noisier than horses, they were noisier than steam, they were definitely noisier than electric. In fact, the electric cars were so quiet that people complained about it. In 1908, after a pedestrian had been hit and killed by an electric car, they had these warnings that were made mandatory. The new owner's manuals for electric cars said, With the silent electric car, special care is needed to avoid running down incautious pedestrians. So there's your warning. Some cities started passing bylaws about minimum noise requirements. What a weird time. And it's not the first time this happened, by the way. If you go back to like 1797, bells on horse-drawn sleighs were mandatory all over the place. In Baltimore, if your sleigh wasn't noisy enough, you could get slapped with a $1 fine. In Detroit, you get sent to jail. But that's Detroit. So, okay, electric versus gasoline. Electric cars are easier to start, they're quieter to run, they're the vehicle of choice for most women. I'm not saying female drivers are a large segment of the market, but they were growing, and, you know, in a house, even if they're not the primary driver, you can bet they have considerable influence when they're picking the family vehicle. Anyway, all this gives electric cars the early lead in the race against gasoline. So with all that in their favor, and the backing of Henry Ford and Thomas Edison. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention him. Okay, so uh, Ford and Edison are buddies and he's totally on board with his electric car thing. Here's what he said. Electricity is the thing. 
There are no whirring and grinding gears with their numerous levers to confuse. There is not that almost terrifying uncertain throb and whir of the powerful combustion engine. There is no water circulating system to get out of order. No dangerous and evil-smelling gasoline and no noise. So with all that support, Electric was guaranteed to take off. But Electric did not take off. So why? There are three main theories. And I also have a fourth. Let me take you back to the evening of December 10th, 1914, in West Orange, New Jersey. Thomas Edison's working at his experimental laboratory, and this is just one building in a huge complex that has all kinds of different things in there, like office space and a special warehouse for batteries. Now that evening, a fire broke out. It ripped through the office building and threatened the laboratory. So Edison and others who were there frantically start moving their most valuable work and anything explosive away from the flames. When the fire was finally put out, much of the complex was in ruin and a lot of valuable work had been destroyed. So the first theory about the failure of electric cars is that the fire destroyed the research and production. So it was just bad luck. It was an unfortunate twist of fate. But was it bad luck? A lot of people then, and many still today, think that fire wasn't an accident at all. Maybe it was arson. Maybe it was deliberately set to derail Edison's research. Now that rumor's never been proven, but it's a good rumor. And it leads us to the second big theory, is that the electric car was killed by the oil cartels. Drilling for oil and turning it into gasoline was already big business back then. The people behind those industries, most notably John D. Rockefeller, you've heard of him, he's the founder of Standard Oil, they had the means and the motive to encourage, and I'm doing finger quotes, encourage the production of gasoline cars over electric ones. So did they really set the fire? Or did they use other means to influence Henry Ford? Maybe. The third theory about why the electric car never made it goes back to Henry Ford's friendship with Thomas Edison. Edison was focused on nickel-iron batteries. They were much lighter than lead-acid batteries, but the thing is, as they existed back then, they just didn't have much punch. They had very high internal resistance. They couldn't produce as much power. But despite that, Ford made it clear to all his engineers that those were the batteries to be used in the car they were designing. In fact, he bought 100,000 nickel-iron batteries and stacked them in a warehouse he planned to turn into a factory on Woodward Avenue in Detroit. But, frustrated with the lack of power, Ford's engineers secretly substituted lead-acid batteries into their prototypes. When Ford found out, he went ballistic. He shut the whole project down. Thing is, I don't know if I believe that one. I mean, you've already invested $1.5 million in the project at that point. Are you really going to totally give up on it just out of loyalty to your friend? I don't know. So what was it? A mysterious fire? Corporate bullying? Loyalty to a friend? Which of those killed the electric car? Or is the explanation something altogether different? Timing. In the summer of 1911, a man walks into a U.S. patent office and submits an application. His invention is small enough to fit in the palm of your hand, and the parts used to build it only cost a couple of bucks. The top line of his application read like this. 
to all whom it may concern, be it known that I, Charles F. Kettering, a citizen of the United States, residing at Dayton, County of Montgomery, State of Ohio, have invented certain new and useful improvements in engine starting devices. That's right, the electric starter, a small electric motor that provides the energy to get the internal combustion engine firing on all cylinders. Kettering's application took three years to be processed and was confirmed on August 17, 1915. Why does that date matter? It's the same month that Henry Ford shuts down the electric car program. The electric starter removed the biggest impediment to the gasoline-powered car. It got rid of that stupid hand crank and all the smashed knuckles and broken arms that came with it. To use a modern term, it improved the user experience, so much so that it basically eliminated any need for an electric car. Yes, you can point to other things that were happening at the time, and other people have pointed to those things. The lack of electricity in rural areas, the cheap price of gasoline, a certain world war that was happening. And I get it, those are not trivial matters. But for me, thinking about this, honestly, when I get in my car and I push the ignition button and it just comes to life, I can't help but think that was easy. And my that was easy experience just might be what killed the electric car. When you look at it that way, the success or failure of the electric car wasn't dependent on what it could do or how much it cost or any other tangible characteristic. It all came down to timing. I mean, if Ford and Edison had their electric vehicle on the road two years earlier, you know, like if they weren't delayed by that fire, or if Kettering had taken two more years to perfect the starter, maybe, just maybe, everything would have been different. All across America, general stores would have a charging station up front instead of those gas pumps. Don't even get me started on lead pollution, carbon dioxide emissions, climate change, or how about the politics of the Middle East? All of that, all because of timing. Okay, this is the point in the podcast where I try to make some sense of what's happening at Saimar today using those historical stories as a reference. In the first episode, I told you about Dr. Wayne Lott's eureka moment, the day he stumbled upon the relationship between the nerves in the liver and the way insulin acts in the body. That happened in 1989, but it could have happened 13 years earlier if it weren't for, you guessed it, bad timing. Yeah, timing does matter. That's Dr. Lott. We first discovered the function of the parasympathetic nerves in the liver back in 1976, where we figured out a way of electrically stimulating only the parasympathetic nerves in the liver, and we got just a dramatic effect. I tried a couple of experiments, but I had another huge breakthrough that was going on in the lab at that time, and that's what I went for. So the big fish got away on him. But after more than a decade chasing down those other discoveries, Dr. Lott turned his focus back to the parasympathetic nerves. And then the whole thing just exploded. It was, it was like, my God, this is the missing link. But again, a matter of timing. When I was department head, the funding situation was changing uh, dramatically. And it was down to the point where only 15% of applications from Canadian scientists were being funded. And of course, it's impossible to do research without funding because you need the tools, you need the technology. But now, years later, the diabetes epidemic has grown too large to ignore. 
Certainly, type 2 diabetes was a serious medical concern back then. It impacted around 10 million people in North America. But it was seen most often in elderly people, and it was usually just chalked up to poor lifestyle choices. Today, that number is over 40 million people in North America. That is 10% of us. That means, statistically speaking, it's almost impossible that you don't personally know someone who has type 2 diabetes. Over the past 30 years, the medical community has thrown everything they have at the disease, but it continues to spread. Globally, the number of people with the disease is now approaching half a billion, and that number is even larger if you include pre-diabetes. Diabetes is increasing year to year. We see increases in the incidence of diagnosed diabetes, but also all of the consequences of diabetes, eye issues, limb amputations, 70,000 limbs cut off in the United States last year, that they should never get to that stage. That horrific reality is why the timing is now right for a paradigm shift. The current approach clearly is not working, and as a result, Dr. Lott now has so much more momentum than he did 30 years ago. When something is discovered goes a long way towards determining if it's a success. But what about who? How much does personality matter when it comes to changing the world with science? Next, we're going to look at the personalities of great scientists. From the ones who become celebrities, to the shy introverts that toil away for years in anonymity. And we'll talk with Dr. Lott about what happens when researchers are asked to become salespeople, marketers, and lobbyists. That's next time on Inside the Breakthrough, Episode 3, The Outsider. I'm Dan Riskin. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. New episodes come out every two weeks. Oh, there's one more detail about Francis Curtis and his steam-powered car in 1867. So I mentioned that it was sold for $1,000. Well, technically, that makes it the first car ever sold in America, because up until that point, all the other horseless carriages were just these homemade contraptions that only ever got used by their inventors. So you've got the first car ever sold, you've got the first car ever repossessed, and it's the first one ever used to run from the police. I do not understand how this is not the default car for Grand Theft Auto. They should have a Grand Theft Auto 1867 Curtis Steamer Edition. I would play that. I would definitely play that.